0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. This is your host, Francesco, and today we're back with an amazing episode with nonetheless of the guy that invented <laughs> web pen testing and actually patented it. So, uh, we have Caleb Sima that uh, just recently uh, left Databricks, he's been with Databricks for a couple of years, and now he joined Robinhood uh, to effectively be the CISO. Uh, and um, you, can, you can see everything on, on LinkedIn and I'm going to drop the links. But effectively, we, we look at how he went uh, from startup to venture capitalist to then getting, uh, you know, brought uh, up or involved with data breaks. and uh, effectively how talent get recruited uh, with startup that I know something about because we are in the journey with Security Phoenix to recruit people and to hire people and to hire always the best talent. And, you know, you need to a little bit caught people and uh, these episodes express uh, exactly that and then we touch on effectively the the amazing things that also we're doing with security phoenix like machine learning and how it can potentially be applicable to anything and of course we 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 touch zero trust because everybody's talking about zero trust nowadays (laughs) and then uh potentially we touch on a, a little bit on the crazy uh hyper growth of silicon valley tech and risk management and how effectively the no code right now in these days is taking over a lot of development and you know the good and the bad that's uh that has adds into the cybersecurity, but also in the tech and how we can tackle that problem uh as a security person or as a, me as a security person with a cio and cto hat <laughs> trying to invent a new product but I hope you guys enjoy this. This is an amazing episode. It's a little bit longer than expected, but it's a lot of great content. I hope you enjoy. This is your host, Francesco.
1: Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcast and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com.
0: And we're live and welcome back everybody on the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today, we have the absolute honor to have an inventor, we can say, of (laughs) the same concept of uh, web application assessment, we have the honor to have Caleb Sima. On the show, Caleb, it's an absolute pleasure to have a person of your experience from both technology that, and managerial that has gone through the journey. And I'm super, super curious to hear you out and hear the journey that you went through. But uh, if if uh, nobody, uh, if anybody in, in in our audience doesn't know you well, can you give our audience a little bit of a, an overview of uh, what was your journey? Had where do you come from? A little bit of background. Sure.
2: Let's see, where do I start? How far back? <laughs> back in the days. <laughs> back of the days. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of a real, I'm kind of old man. And I started in security in the early nineties. Uh, well, let's just say that my interest in security started when I was a kid. So when I was around 13 or 14 years old, um, where it kind of kicked off. And I remember the way it happened was at the time we had these things called bulletin board systems, BBSs. Mm-hmm. This was like before the internet. And I remember I dialed into this one BBS and uh, they had this file on there on how to make free payphone calls. So to those of you who don't know, payphones were these old school things that were on the side of roads that you would have, you could call, There's you know, mobile phones weren't a thing. Uh, and I was like, no way can you do that. And you could, you go to Radio Shack, you could buy these parts, put it all together and make it work. I went and did it. I was hooked instantly. And then from that file, it led me to all these other files and then you and then, then you're calling like international bulletin board systems in like Russia to see more of these files. And I was hooked on the security thing. So it went from sort of this phone freaking into sort of mainframes into software. Um, and then my first real job uh, doing security was at this company called Security First, which was based out of Atlanta, Georgia in the U.S., And it was the world's first online bank. And what they meant by that was banks at that time didn't have an online interface. And so this was a SaaS service that sort of fronted the web interface for all these banks. And I was essentially the first sort of security guy doing that. Um, And then it went to this, uh, my next job after that was this company called Internet Security Systems ISS where I was a researcher, I reverse engineered software and I wrote exploits. You can Google and probably still find them. And I led uh, the first pen testing team Wow. Uh, at ISS. And again, this was like in the 90s. So this was like 96, 97 kind of time frame. And it wasn't called pen testing. It was called, I remember like, hey, Caleb, we need to justify why this company should buy our security products. <laughs> so what they're going to do is they're going to allow you to try to break into the company and then we'll get the report and we'll pass it to the CEO and they'll be like, great, we need to buy software to protect against this. And that's what that was called. Um, so I did not Nothing that else has changed. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing else <laughs> just a name. It's, it is true. It is true. Um, and then what happened was uh, during that process of breaking into companies, I learned very quickly that web was so easy to break in. And I remember the first time I broke into a company via the website. And the way that it happened was um, I was looking at this login page. It was just a username and password. And when you viewed the source of the page, there is in the comments of the page, there was an actual conversation between the developers back and forth to each other in the comments. In the page. In the page. In the page. (laughs) And one of the comments comments was like, hey, Bob, like I put the administrative page at this location (laughs) and they listed a URL. And so I was like reading this and I was like reading a conversation between engineers uh, on this. And I was like, oh, okay. And I copied it. Went to it, no authentication, just an admin page uh, where I could upload files, change the content. Hey, HTML is
0: secure; nobody can see it.
2: (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) Uh, And I remember that I was like, "This is crazy that this happens." And this is again, you know, this was early in the web, so this is like '98, '99. But I just started breaking into everything via web applications, and uh, and in 2000. Uh, decided to go start Spy Dynamics, which was uh, my first company. And all it was, was automating all the things I did as a pen tester, right, in web. So, And at the time, what I would do is I'd run a web crawler, take the output of that, feed it into my scripts that would go and attack it to find all these areas and, and bugs and misconfigurations. And, you know, that's obvious now to do this, but back then it wasn't obvious no, it to mine a web crawler with an attacker. And so that became my first product called Web Inspect, which was a black box web scanner. And I went and patented it. Uh, you and I had this conversation a little bit earlier. Um, and who knew that you could actually go and patent the fact that taking a URL, substituting it for some sort of value and forced to look for security issues is patentable. But it is. And I patented. Um,
0: Holy sudden... And- you became the inventor of pen testing, how to make the a pen, pen, web, a pen web testing. testing.
2: Yeah, yes. and like <laughs> it really like back then it, it it's it's obvious, but back then it wasn't obvious. And so I was able to get patent on that. And so Spy had patents on all these different things. You can go on my LinkedIn if you want to go, go read through them uh, around all sorts of web assessment and black box security scanning. But that company became very successful. Uh, we did it for around seven years. It was an awesome company. And as actually growing up for me, because I started it when I was 19. And, you know, it was, I didn't go to college, I didn't go to high school. You know, that company became my family, my college years, my high school years, you know, was kind of in this company and building it. And it was an amazing experience.
0: You learn so much with hands on stuff.
2: You do. You learn a lot about, you know, It's, it's just, you know, how to build a company, how to go through the struggles. You know, I've got all sorts of stories I can tell you about, about that. Cause we bootstrapped it, right? Like there was, there's, there's a story of where like we were trying to raise capital and, um, and right prior to the day it was, it was, we were supposed to get our wired, our funds in on a Monday. And then on that Sunday previous, previous, the VC called and pulled out of our deal. Wow. Not only did they pull out of our deal, but they left us with all the legal fees. So we had like hundred grand worth of legal fees that it was just us. It was just like a couple, like a few people Mm -hmm. that, you know, we were literally making, I was making generating money through pen tests and services gigs. And one of my other founders was, uh, I'm not kidding you, uh, washing houses. To bring in capital,
0: but whatever works, so,
2: <laughs> whatever works, right? Exactly. But there's like there's like crazy stories around it. So, anyways, uh, Spy got acquired by HP. I was then uh, CTO and head of application security for HP for around three years. I helped put together a lot of the security strategy for what was HP's security pillar. So the acquisitions of companies like Fortify and ArcSight, I drove a lot of that as a roadmap and a vision. Um, after that, I left HP to join another really small stock called Armorize, which was focused at the time on static code analysis. And actually, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of passion I still have for static code analysis that hasn't even been done yet. And I was hoping to kind of get that out in this company. But what we realized in that company is that actually they had this small project that did malware analysis or a really like, really, really great sandbox analysis fast and at scale. And we ended up pivoting the company to that, which was the right call to do, and generated a ton of revenue very quickly through that project. And it ended up being acquired by um, Proofpoint uh, as one they of the. It
0: always fascinated me how you pivot or you identify. Like Slack is the same story. is is a small, super tiny project that you have on the side, and all of a sudden, everybody's interested in that, and your main product becomes that. It just it just amazing and fascinating.
2: And it also shows like why innovation is so important and why even at a small company, you have to allow a lot of these random projects that don't relate to your main source of revenue because you just never know, right? You never know when something hits product market fit, but it's a good, it's a, it's a great thing to have. So we did that. uh, And then I decided after that, like, you know, what should I do next? And uh, one of the key things is I wanted to learn about venture capital right? So I've been now at two companies where you have to go raise capital. capital, right? So I was like, okay, I want to go do it. And at the time there was this, uh, firm that had was pretty early Andreessen Horowitz, mm-hmm. right? Which is a pretty early venture capital firm at the time. Uh, I went and joined them as an entrepreneur in residence for a year. And my goal was, I just want to be there every day from like nine to seven every day, be in every meeting and see every deal. And that's what I did for a year. I learned everything I could about venture capital and Andreessen and Horowitz grew into a behemoth hmm. that it is today. But at the time, I think there was like maybe 23 people in the whole firm uh, when it's when I joined and did it for a year. Still quite it's, a number. Uh, now I think it's like 200 or something. Thank God, This is impressive. It's a a different world. It's a different beast. (laughs) It's a different, yeah. It's a whole thing. And I also was working on sort of a next startup called Blue Box uh, in the background at the time, and then went and kicked off Blue Box, which focused on mobile application security, specifically around taking mobile applications. Uh, Building a container around them at the time was called wrapping these applications so that you could essentially intercept and see all of the data going in and out of a mobile application. That became Blue Box. And we did that for around three years. And it was acquired by uh, a company called Lookout, uh, focused on consumer oriented mobile security. And we were the enterprise mobile security. Uh, And their goal was to take the two of us and then go hit the enterprise side of the market. I don't know if that happened or not. I haven't really kept up (laughs) with what Lookout did. I'm not sure if it did. And then at that point, I was like, hey, you know, like, what's the next startup to go do? Uh, But I noticed something pretty interesting, which was there was a ton of cybersecurity startups coming out at the time, Mm -hmm. right? Which there still are with really, really cool technology. But at the same time, all of the CISOs or practitioners are getting breached by basic fundamental problems. Like, yeah. Hey, I didn't patch this, or I didn't know that existed, or I wasn't sure that was mine. Like all these really basic things that you're like, we have solutions for this. Why is this an issue? And so I decided, you know what, I've I've done a lot in my career, but I've never been a practitioner. I've never been a defender of an organization. So I went ahead and jumped into Capital One as my first gig In defending a company. And at Capital One, Capital One was tiny company. (laughs) Tiny company. And so you would think it's a bank, right? And it's super it's super big. Therefore, it's like massive red tape and huge politics. And it's moves slow like a behemoth. Completely the opposite of what Capital One is. Yeah. Capital One is so fast moving, it's it's scary. Like it they move faster than startups move in terms of decisions. Right, it's crazy. I was uh, and impressed. They Kanban back.
0: everything. Uh, last time I walked in their office, they have Kanban in every single block of desks. It was yep. I, I was interacting with a few. I have a few friends down there, and it's it's impressive how they they extended their agile methodology on literally everything. How our team just gather around and throw back ideas. I was seriously
2: impressed. It really is crazy. Um, like when I joined. Uh, we were, uh, 50% of the way of moving from on-prem into AWS, Mm -hmm. like we were 50%. The whole goal was move everything over. And I was there for two years. And I think when I left, they were already at 80%.
0: And the tool set that
2: they publish as well is impressive. Yep, That's right. And so they do some really cool things. I really enjoyed my time there. I got to experience some amazing things at scale, mm-hmm. uh, got to see massive problems at a, at a very big scale and got to do and dive deep into some really interesting areas. But at the time, uh, a new CISO had come into Capital One and I had my first kid. And so I <laughs> had a new decided, project. <laughs> yeah, it's a new project. I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a sabbatical. I work really hard. It's time to take a sabbatical, learn what it's like to be a dad. So I left Capital One to learn, to sort of uh, be with my kid for a year. And then during that time frame, I really dug into getting back into technology. And so there are two areas I didn't know anything about, and that was blockchain and cryptocurrency and machine learning. And so I decided I'm going to go super deep, hands on keyboard in both of those things. Walked out of that year with cryptocurrency and blockchain, eh, like not sure uh, what to do about that. But machine learning, super cool. Super fascinating. Super fascinating. And there's just so many adjacencies Mm -hmm. in machine learning. There's so many places it can be applied for just incremental improvements. That's amazing. And so I really, really got excited about that, dealt a lot into it. And I was at a happy hour where I ran into this guy, David Cook, who is the CISO at a company called Databricks. Um, And and, uh, we were talking about machine learning. We got really excited about it. And he was like, hey, you know, the guys who invented Spark started this company called Databricks. Why don't you come advise me on what we can do around how to build a security team? And then he ended up suckering me into Databricks somehow. And I joined it. <laughs> by the
0: way, we have an open position. And by the way, are you open? Yeah.
2: <laughs> it really was. Like there's a there's a lot of that. And uh, it's a, it's a great company though. And, you know, I came in and I and I got to do something the opposite of Capital One, which is Capital One. I had a team of 250 people. Wow. Right. And then at Databricks, I had a team of one person. And so I had to build the whole team from scratch and do it in a very hyper growth tech Silicon Valley company. And so there's a two very different sets of problems that you experience. Right. in both of those. And so now I've seen both. Hyper growth, start the team from scratch. Large enterprise at scale, mm-hmm. and so I get to see both of these kinds of problems, which is really fascinating to kind of kind of see. It. So that's where I am today.
0: No, it's, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing story. But if I can recap, how did you feel like? Um, did you feel like it was an organic role, like going from super tech uh, to management, back to tech and back to management, or? Um, How do you see, because that's that's a very unique style and unique way that U.S. company, and U.S. organization have. How do you see that? In
2: terms of like as as an individual. Yeah, as an individual. Being a technology. Yeah. And, you know, like I'll say this. um, I am at my root and at my core, a technologist. Right. So I enjoy technology. And how I know this is, where do you get your energy from? So for example, I can sit in front of a a computer and if I'm coding or doing something, reading something technical, I will turn around, it'll be 3 a.m., right? And I'll be like, what happens?" Super focused. Super focused. But I cannot do that if I pick up a management book and read a management book. I won't look up and go, it's 3 a.m. I'll be like, okay, I understand the management book. I can do it, I understand it, but it doesn't excite me, Mm. right? And there are people who are fantastic people managers who what excites them is reading the next management book and read like I've read a ton of management books, but it's not the same level. I don't get my energy from it. Right. When I sit at work and I do meetings with people one after the other, after the other, I'm exhausted at the end of the day. Right. Because meetings are about managing people about the strategy around doing these things. It's exhausting. Yes. So my core is always tech. That's how I know I get my energy from there, but because of where I, where I've gone and in order to make large impact, in order to really scale what you do, you have to be able to manage and you have to be able to do it well. And you have to be able to understand people's, you know, their, their motivations, where they want to go, how to build things, because that's how you scale the organization and how you actually end up making a massive impact. So I think there's two things that I, I, I've always uh, kind of stood out to me. If you're a tech person, what's great is every single day is success. <laughs> you get this little bit of, you win this, you As... find this bug, you build this thing. Like it's every day you get success. Boom, boom you get this dopamine, like every single day versus in management, your the outcome of your success That's is in months or years. Yeah. Right. Every day you think you didn't do anything, but then if you look back six months from where you were, you made massive impact. You've you moved that massive ship a little bit, and so there are two very different levels of uh,
1: satisfaction.
0: No, it's 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 really interesting how how you see the thing and how you see the the perspective because I can I, I definitely can relate to that. I've seen massive transformation, uh, and I I see how frustrating it is from a technologist to try to steer an organization at the pace that you think tech works, but. People don't work at the same pace of tech and and that was the lesson that I realized uh, back in the days when I was driving application security for a large bank let's say. <laughs> so I, I definitely I definitely can relate to say, why are we not doing this today and fix it tomorrow because just it can't <laughs>
2: that's that's right. I mean, people can't be programmed unfortunately no and so. is.
0: Is, is a big lesson. It's a big lesson that uh, anybody that come from tech and move into management slowly is going to learn, right?
2: Yep, absolutely.
0: Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor and then we return back.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients, and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote.
0: And back now in in the, in the today's world. So, you you went full on on uh, AI. So, w- what do you see as fascinating? Well, I see a lot of fascination in AI, and I have my background is actually in in machine learning rather than AI. The kind of the It's just math. <laughs> if we boil it down, is math. But how do you see the two intersection between cybersecurity and AI? If you want.
2: Yeah, and I'll say not AI, but I'll I'll go with machine learning because I don't think uh, to me, I'll make a <laughs> distinction is like, I feel like AI is like the sentient, like uh, decision making, fully capable decision making kind of process mm-hmm. uh, versus I think machine learning to me, machine learning is like functions of code, right? If you write a function to go do something, a machine learning block, black box can take place in that function and do it in a better way, mm-hmm. right? Or do it in maybe a less complicated way. And so I feel like you know, machine learning adds a lot of value in the right pieces. You can do some amazing things with machine learning, but I think the problem with cybersecurity, or at least I think marketing and press make machine learning uh, so overblown in its value. It's caused high expectations where there shouldn't be. Magic, right? magic. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not magic, right? And so, like you know, you see all these all these vendor solutions come in and say you know, all machine learning or all AI, no rules, right? And it's like, first of all, like there's definitely rules. Uh, There has to be rules. And by the way, rules are good. Like having a set of rules helps you filter to be able to add where machine learning can add value, right? Like just because, you know, you work both of them together. A set of rules and a set of some things that do great at machine learning at a very specific piece.
0: That's the technology right? like speaking, technology speaking, not the salesperson or manager That's, <laughs> <thing>. <laughs>
2: that's right. Sorry, I, I had to. <laughs> so, like, I, I do think that there's there's complements there, and I think that machine learning used in the right areas and the right focus pieces adds a lot of different value. Right. Uh, but you can't look at machine learning. As the magic solution for everything, because it just doesn't. It doesn't work. We're not there yet, um, so it takes a little bit of time.
0: No, I, I totally agree. But as you as you rightfully say, there is a lot of buzz in marketing, and if you pitch a, a startup to a VC and it doesn't have AI in it, well, US actually VC are, are much more thorough. Uh, I've had discussion with a few of the VC in the US, and they went so deep in DevSecOps and few tweaks and tricks. Um, so, I was massively blown away by the level of uh, technicality that people get down to. Well, European, they're much more high level. So, they're more influenced by the buzzwords, if you will.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and in and any new industry, you know, people aren't educated, right? And so they're going to go with the hype. If the hype is there, they're going to go with the hype. And there's, there's, there's that rush of people who take advantage of that. Right, where they throw the buzzwords in the thing, they'll get their money, they'll get their mm-hmm. funding, they'll get their their purchases. But as that market or that industry starts maturing, more and more people become more knowledgeable about it, they start understanding where things work, where they fail. And they and call now BS. they dec- <laughs> Yeah, and they start calling BS. And they're like, Okay, well, you, you say AI. AI. Yeah, why don't you why don't you double click on that a bit? <laughs>
0: No, that's absolutely right. So if if I can be evil, what will be the next buzzword?
2: What's the next buzzword? Oh, um, man, I don't know.
0: So we had AI. We had, well, we had to have in a while. What else do we had? We had cloud. I think we we were full of cloud and cloud automation. Zero
2: Trust. Zero Uh, Trust
0: has been trending these these days.
2: I think Zero Trust is old school. It's it's very old. Yeah, well, machine learning was also very old, but I guess it—you it, know—it kind of new. I, I, zero trust—I feel like there's a like. There's, there's yes. been a
0: hype. There's been a hype with uh, yeah. just VPN calling it zero trust and selling it for because of COVID and other, and other reason. There's been like a refresh or a revamp of zero trust, but it's effectively just a VPN. somewhere. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I I don't know what the next buzzword is, but I will tell you what I think the next sort of big big market mm. is probably going to be in, and I think it's going to be in, in sort of cloud authorization, right? Like, how do you deal with, you know, IAM and and do it in the cloud and deal with the permissions and uh, roles? Maybe simplify and the permission. <laughs> yeah, like I, because it's become a really big problem, it is. and. And so there's, there's a lot of vendors that are kind of coming out of the woodwork now trying to tackle this. And it's not just about identifying if, if they're if someone is doing something wrong, it's about managing the process around like cloud, like AWS, let me give it. AWS is not just for engineers, right? In my company, AWS, marketing uses AWS, sales uses AWS, support uses AWS, like everybody has capability and engineering-level talent to be able to use AWS and and or cloud infrastructure. Right? And so it's not just about managing prod anymore Mm -hmm. or engineering, it's about the whole company and what permissions do they require and why and how. And how do you do it as a security team without getting in their way? How do you not become the bottleneck to allow them to do all the things they need to do, but do it in a way that's safe? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big area. That's
0: and doing it at scale, like you you just mentioned, it, it can be probably challenging because you have different level of expertise depending on the team, right? Yep. You might not. Yeah, have so that. I
2: don't know what the buzzword is. Cloud <laughs> security posture. I don't. I don't know what it's called. There's there's a buzzword for it. I'm sure. It's Identities. Coming.
0: Cloud. <laughs> finally, cloud identity. Simple. Let's go it that way. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Let's there's a buzzword. It. Let's patent it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably somebody has invented. But no, I, I absolutely agree. I think um, I, I, kind of, I kind of sit in the, in the middle for cloud security uh, and specifically the identity. And I think some cloud providers had a little bit more uh, longer side and oversight that simplify their access control model and their RBAC model. Some other have gone service by service and API by API and overcomplicated complicated in some way. The access model, and now they're paying kind of the consequence. I'm not going to name names, <laughs> right. right? But we, we, we kind of we kind of had an understanding of who who is who.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would agree.
0: But yeah, no, I, I agree that it, it, it might become challenging. And uh, so, in in an organization like yours, how do you manage those at scale? How do you manage access control and recertification and, and deciding? who needs to have access to what and how that changed tomorrow?
2: I mean, I'll I'll tell you, we don't have the right answer, right? Like, let me, I'll tell you where we're at. So, and I've noticed this very similarly among uh, other companies in our stage, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to call this, I'm going to call our stage a very, very specific stage, which is a technology company in Silicon Valley, right? Uh, hyper growth mode, right? Trying to figure out where where to go. So, you know, let's call this between you know, a thousand and three thousand employees, maybe mm-hmm. kind of, kind of range. So at this stage, what I've noticed is, as a security team, we've been able to do one thing at least so far. Knock on wood, right? That we've been able to get a control of IAM. We've been able to say, okay, we now have the ability to say, hey, you can't just go spin up whatever you want, right? We have the right tools and the right processes in place to say we'll see you spin it up if it's not in the right permission or you you don't have the right thing we'll we'll stop it and mm-hmm. or we'll notify you about it right so we've got all that kind of we've got a grip on it the problem is now we're in this phase where the security team specifically has become a bottleneck there because mm-hmm. now if i want to go spin something up or if i need to go get this guy to go talk to that guy well i need to make sure that the security team has the right approval for it and then right. off and running we are. And so that pulls us into a bottleneck. We are now ticket takers, mm-hmm. right? Where, oh, you got a file, you got to file, you got to approve, you got to approve, right? And that's a terrible place to be. You don't want to be in a because place everybody about hates being you. a ticket taker. Everybody hates you. And by the way, the security doesn't want to be in the process of being a ticket taker either. But you have to sort of get the culture in a place where everything is funneled in and then now we're in a place to say, okay, well, how do we no longer become ticket takers, right? How do we get it to where now everybody don't, they don't have to have permission, right. quote unquote, but they can just spin it up. And if it's in the wrong boundaries oh, yeah. or the wrong area, then we'll either, we'll, we'll talk to them about it or we'll auto notify them or auto remediate. Or is there a place you know where you can just come to us and we can delegate the permissions out. You can just say, I'm going to do this, this, and this. We can look at it in an automated fashion and say, Mm -hmm. you are, based on your role, who you are, you're allowed to do that. And we'll monitor it at the time that it's now produced to make sure it's doing what it needs to do in an automated fashion. So Mm -hmm. now you just delegate it out, let everybody do what they want to do with the right boundaries from who they are, what they need to require, and normalize based on others in their team. So kind of a templated form. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that's where we would like to get. So then, so now we need to turn that around to make it so that everybody can do what they want with the right boundaries based on who they are mm-hmm. and what group they're coming from. And so I think that's the next stage. We're not there yet, right? Like we're struggling in the same as similar companies yeah. in this space where they're at that's the same spot too, which is we've gotten control of it. But now that we've got control of it, it's not the right place to be, but right? Like. So how do we change that?
0: Yeah. No, I agree. And and even bigger organizations have the same challenge where you all of a sudden put a control and you become the bottleneck and everybody starts hating you and you don't want to be hate or, or at that <laughs> bottleneck. Uh, I talk from an application security or cloud security perspective, when you introduce a new process or a new control, you introduce that with a people perspective and then you automate. If you try to automate it from the very beginning, I say, good luck with that. <laughs> right.
2: Right. Yeah. It, and it's everything is, you're right, man. It's done in phases, right? Yeah. You have to do it in the right phases at the right time. Um, it really is about the right process.
0: No, but it's amazing that, well, I, I think that's a culture of of a startup where everybody is kind of an engineering mindset, but where do you think, uh, what do you think shifting a little bit of, of topic on the low code, no code and uh, citizen who codes and that the whole initiative of like, very, very little knowledge about coding, but actually building blocks and, and team that can actually pull together a prototype and just go almost to production with a prototype without having any security approval or security guardrail.
2: Okay, so I guess there's maybe two ways I would approach this. Um, the first, let's just talk about the no code capability, mm-hmm. right? The value of it, I think, is immense, right? I believe that being able to build something. Um, as close to a working prototype without having to have someone, yeah, that's tangible. So you can figure out the, you know, all of the pitfalls Mm -hmm. of what you need to do and be able to do that with no code is the right way to go. In fact, even engineers who do code can make use of this as a faster way to be able to prototype and do what they want before they say, how do we make a, a, a finalized, you know, production ready version of that? So I think the value of that is phenomenal um in fact um you know there's some of this in this orchestration stuff like if you heard of like you know like soar or mm-hmm. tines for the security team like that's it's very close to where i can create automations and workflows through no code by dragging a couple boxes and that's amazing settings. it's amazing right even the guys who do code our security Love engineers it. are using it yeah because they're like well i don't have to pull up my Lambda <laughs> templates and like, do all, like I could just drag, drop this. Why template. should I
0: code when I can actually <laughs> draw boxes and they yeah. look nice?
2: <laughs> yeah. So it saves a ton of time, right? Sure. And absolutely is very valuable. Not only does it allow people who are talented in code to do their work faster, it up levels people who don't yeah, have a the, the code button. to be able to do the work uh, better. Right. And so there's no, there's, there's no question it's valuable. So in my mind, if it's valuable, we have to do it. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. And I actually believe from a security perspective, but this is all depending on the vendor and who does it, but from a security perspective, it should be great for us, right? Because once things are in a templated, no code way, Mm -hmm. that means it's structured, it's templated, it's consistent, which means what you have to do as a security person is, can you insert your security foundations into that no code? Like we've been in AppSec, you're an AppSec guy, we've Mm -hmm. known this forever. I don't want to flag SQL injection problems to developers. I would rather or have
0: or input validation.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I want I want a, a a paved road library that you can just use. That's this is the way that's accepted, and then yeah. if you just do that, you're you're good to go. And so no code is a perfect way to get that, right? Where here are all of the components that's been previewed, accepted, standardized, and templated. Now, people who aren't developers can make secure by prototypes design. by design. Yeah, that's this is this is a dream come true for security people.
0: No, I agree. And the problem is, well, up to a certain way, I agree with you. Um, I, I, what I'm terrified of is if the aggregation of certain components actually lead to compromise or logic breaks uh, rather than uh, nothing. So, it's, it's still teaching that threat modeling to people to actually not assume that. Um, kind of keep them paranoid if you want. So keep them questioning, is this actually safe? Uh, because fundamentally, you can enable or disable, you you can have uh, an authentication flow with multi-factor and without multi-factor. And by default, the authentication flow could be secure, but it's the logic behind that people thinking and validating, am I actually inserting multi-factor? Am I actually uh, thinking like an attacker? And I think from an authentication flow, we had been lucky that a lot of people are start questioning and and kind of becomes the norm, multi-factor and 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 stronger password. But for other things like input validation or a, a chain and sequence of of queries or logic in the front end versus the back end, it's not that it's not that immediate. If you want,
2: is is, is what you're saying is the risk? Uh, let me make sure I heard you correctly. Is, is you're saying that the risk is about? Well, if you have this no code solution, then one component is going to be the same component used for everything. If that has a vulnerability, then it impacts everything.
0: Or a block of, or a block of CQ component can actually lead to a vulnerability in the logic of code.
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no question you are correct, right? Which is, hey, if you use one thing everywhere and that thing has a vulnerability, then it affects everybody. Yeah. Right? That's library. definitely an issue. <laughs> yeah, like a library. However, I I would like you to take a look at what the alternative is, right? Mm. And so I'm going to, I'm going to make a simple scenario. Let's take patching, right? So let's take like, let's say your systems are what they are today, which is that you've got a ton of disparate different OSs, libraries, patch levels across your entire, you know, ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Your entire landscape, which means that there's no way one vulnerability is going to affect your entire landscape, (laughs) right? Tomorrow, (laughs) though. (laughs) But but let's take the alternative, which is say, okay, would you rather have that as a risk factor, which Mm -hmm. is, okay, I know one vulnerability won't affect my entire landscape, or I have a landscape at which everything is standardized across one OS, one version, and one patch level, where it's true, one vulnerability can impact my entire landscape, but I also have consistency in standards, where when I apply one to patch, it applies it to everything. Where would you rather be?
0: That's an interesting topic. Do you want to have a systemic risk and then be able to resolve it very, very quickly with procedure, or do you want to have a non-systemic risk and then maybe do a lot of other opposition? position? I don't yeah. know. That that might yeah. be that might be the question for the next buzzword. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but like where like in risk management, like to me. You know if you have the consistency and standardization one uh just in terms of effective value your your company is going to move way faster right you're going to be developing and producing way faster you're going to be able to apply standard security systems across the board and you're going to be able to see discrepancies way faster right if if an exploit does happen you should also, since everything is the same in standards, mm-hmm. you'll see it way faster. And you'll probably be able to quarantine it or contain it a lot faster because of these standards. Versus over here is wild, wild west, which is what we have today, which I don't know what I have. I don't know what I'm vulnerable to. Like people, I can't patch anything, right? And so, like, that's what we have today. And we know this doesn't work. So you're right here, but I feel like I would have. My my risk is way easier to understand and manage on the opposite side where everything is the same. So no, I
0: agree, but uh, on, only because you're lucky. And you work in a in a nice and tech startup world. Work in an environment where you still have cobalt and mainframe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, and- d- d- hey. No, don't give me wrong. I don't know a company that has that environment, right? <laughs> so, but maybe, like, maybe I don't know a company where everything is the same. Maybe Google, I don't know. But like I don't know a company that has everything the same. My company is, isn't. Every company I know is on the everything is disparate.
0: Yeah, you kind of grow into it, patterns. so you would never achieve standardization. But it is a good dream to actually say, if you're in a cloud environment and you can rebuild the cloud environment and you can deploy code faster, Uh, and maybe with the low code and everybody codes in in that kind of standardized way, I definitely see the advantage of scaling much faster and inserting or injecting security and maybe even doing security for business people and and let them threat model their own low code application. That would be amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But anyway, we, we come literally close to the time and uh, I, kept, I, I kept on throwing at you like uh, interesting topics and I love the conversation. We probably can speak for days, but unfortunately um, we come close to the time, but I, I definitely wanna see you back and, and dive in more on the application security and crack application security because it's, or cloud security, because they're the two of my favorite topics and our listener. But we have a tradition in the podcast to effectively leave everybody with a super positive message, especially during these times, um, and conclude and, and leave everybody with like a woman fuzzy feeling. So I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave the stage to you, Caleb, uh, with a positive message on life or cybersecurity. You decide.
2: Oh, man. How about this? Uh, here's, here's my positivity. You know, I've grown up in this industry when it was a really small. Nobody knew about it. nobody cared about it uh, kind of place. And we're now in a place where there are hundreds and thousands of people who are extraordinarily smart cybersecurity people, fascinated industry, building amazing technologies. Just look at the startups, yeah. right? Like, you know, a lot of people like to make fun of the cybersecurity because there's millions of them, right? Which is true, uh, but however, it's awesome, right? Like that, there are millions of them, and that there are, you know, in that there are a lot of junk, but in that there's also some great, great technology companies and great people doing amazing things that are taking our security posture forward a lot as companies. When you look at the fact that companies are now paying security people the highest salaries, right? that they're spending the kind of budget that they do to protect their environments is a great thing. And so I do think, you know, maybe that's some positivity on this is that the industry is growing. It's making us more secure. It's allowing us to be more secure and people care about it, right? It's no longer new technologies that come out and not thinking about security. You know, you look in the drafts of RFCs, security is number one. Everyone thinks about it now when they're building this stuff, when they're, when they're doing it, moving it forward. So that's a great thing
0: we finally got the seat at the table. We finally got listen. So security is finally important. It's in the front foot. Now we need to manage all that attention.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or we need to, yeah, we need to make sure that we think about it the right way. And sure. also I think the biggest flaw that we have as security people is thinking security is number one and not that business is number one. Correct. And so, you know, how do we adjust that to make sure that, it's about. It's not about being a hundred percent secure. It's about how do we do things safely.
0: And and for the business, because if the business stop, the security doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But no, Caleb has been an absolute pleasure and honor to have you in in, in the cybersecurity and cloud podcast. I want you to back on the podcast talking more and more about uh, application security and cloud security. I'd like uh, to thank everybody for listening and uh, again, stay safe and stay secure and do secure coding. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Thank you, Caleb.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com.